Well, good evening, everybody. Thank you for uh, braving the uh, elements and being here with us tonight. Uh, not often we get a chance to drive through a winter storm here in Arizona, but that seems to be what we're dealing with. I could hardly believe, uh, looking at uh, the, uh, the weather uh, function on my, my phone, you have the little icons uh, next to uh, the different times during the day, and like there's little snowflakes on it. I'm like, what happened? I must have moved and no one had, had told me. But we appreciate you being here, and we appreciate all of you who are joining us uh, online tonight. Uh, Peter, we're going to be getting into a pretty intense section of Scripture, not only intense in terms of what it has to say about the future of what's going to happen here horizontally on planet Earth, but also what's going to be going on in a heavenly sense uh, in the last days. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what's going on right now, for those of you guys who've been in the book of Revelation with us, is we finished up the seal judgments. Well, actually, we finished up six of the seal judgments. Right. And yep. the seventh seal is opening up into this new form of judgment called the trumpet judgments. But in between these two, there's been a period where the Apostle John, who's the one who's seeing all these things, he is brought up into a, a heavenly time, right? He sees 144,000 Jewish men sent out and being used by God in the last days. He sees many people who are brought out of the time of tribulation. Literally from all over the world. That's right. Being saved during this really crazy time on earth. And so he sees them worshiping God. And now we're transitioning into the trumpet judgments and things are about to turn up pretty high yes. very very quickly as yeah. you guys will see yeah we we start out in revelation chapter 8 and verse 1 it says uh, when he had opened the seventh seal and as you mentioned we see this sequence of judgments going on in the book of revelation there are debates as to whether this is uh, sequential or whether these overlap or not um, my two cents worth is i think we're seeing a sequence of events uh, flowing on here. The first judgments, the seal judgments, seem to happen one after another. Some will look, for instance, at the sixth seal where uh, the world is being bombarded uh, by, uh, it seems like, meteors and asteroids and comets, and the kings and, and, and the mighty men and all the way down to the lowest slave are trying to find shelter in the rock, saying the great day of the wrath of the Lamb is coming, who's able to stand. Now, some will say, well, that seems like the end of things, with every mountain being moved out of its place and so on. I'm not sure. Uh, you know, it does seem like we see a sequence of judgments here, and probably the most compelling reason is that in Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, we're told that God's not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And God is using this final seven-year period of time to, in a radical way, get people's attention uh, and, and because of that, we see these judgments taking place in incrementally more intense forms. Uh, the sealed judgments, uh, when you take a look at them, seem to involve quarters of the earth, uh, one-fourth of the earth and the population and so forth being judged. As we get into the trumpet judgment, we're going to see it jumps up to thirds. And then you get to the bowl judgment, and it's Katie bar the door, the whole thing's going up. But why the why do you think the incrementalism there? 
So I, I think a very good way to look at it, if we are going to look at it as sequential events that are happening, is, as you said, God is trying to get the attention of the people listening. Uh, you know, I don't know who, who saw the president speak yesterday, but he was talking about doing kind of a, a similar whether or not it's going to be effective, incremental approach when it comes to Russia and Ukraine of we're going to have some sanctions now, but then if you keep this up, we're going to turn up the, the temperature basically right. until you stop. This is what God's doing essentially. This is He is allowing part of his wrath. And remember, this is what we actually see happening in the book of Revelation is God's amazing restraint, his incredible restraint that he is only letting out enough wrath at the given time to convert people, to get people to realize what they're doing. And uh, over time, we'll see that as the judgments hit, those who can be saved will be saved. Those who won't be saved become more and more resistant to God and more and more adamant that they do not want God until they finally see him and try to kill him. Yeah, and and, and that's pretty radical stuff. But when we see this, when God judges, you know, we see the plagues of Egypt. We see them incrementally becoming worse and worse and worse, finally culminating in the death of the firstborn, which was the ultimate judgment that was coming. Something is coming, something worse than you've ever seen. Uh, and, And that's what we see here, you know, in each of these circumstances. God, you know, some people say, well, why doesn't God just snap his fingers? And if the world's just messed up, just evaporate the whole thing. Uh, Some people will say, if God is just, how can he look upon injustice and not judge it? You know, why doesn't God intervene and keep wars from happening? Why don't he intervene and keep the Holocaust from happening? And, And maybe the best answer that I've ever heard is that if God were to eliminate all evil at midnight tonight, who among us would still be around at 1201 to talk about it? You know, God is about the business of rescuing, redeeming as many people as he can. Uh, You know, even the era that we live in now, certainly not as pitched and pronounced as we see in the book of Revelation, but certainly it's true. God sees this world like the Titanic going down. You know, the the iceberg is hit. It's torn the hole in the the hull. The the, the watertight doors aren't going to hold. The ship's going down. But God isn't going to say, well, the ship's going down anyway. Might as well just, uh, you know, fire a few salvos at it and speed up the process. No, he's embarked on a rescue mission. And that's what we are here to do as believers in Christ. You know, some people say, well, you know, why are we here? Well, we're here to worship God. But heavenly worship is going to be a lot better than earthly worship. And some people will say, well, we're here to fellowship and build up one another. Well, well and good, but... Heavenly fellowship is going to be much better than what we got going on here. Uh, you know, Mark Twain said that every man's like the moon with a dark side that he shows to no one. Well, there's going to be no dark side to our lives when we're in heaven. We'll be able to give and receive love perfectly. I mean, you know, who can't who can't wait for that? Uh, and, and so, you know, we we see that the only thing that we can do better here on earth than we can do in heaven isn't fellowship and it isn't worship. It's not even studying God's word because we're going to know even as we're known. It's reaching lost people because there are no lost people in heaven. And and I just challenge you to think through that. How much of a priority is that in your prayers? How much of a priority is that in your day-to-day life? I mean, even the point where we often say, do you wake up in the morning and say, God, give me a divine appointment. Lord, bring someone across my path who doesn't know you, and and can I either be a witness to them or maybe even with words, tell them a little bit more about you and give me the wisdom to do that. 
I think that's as dangerous a prayer as praying for patience, quite frankly, because it's one of those prayers that God will always answer in our lives. So don't be afraid to pray that prayer. So we see this incrementalism going on, and we see that God could just lower the boom, but he's not. And he has lowered the boom pretty good at this point. If I think I, if I'd been a part of uh, Revelation chapter 6, the last part of it, where I'm looking for you know, colossal cave to try to get out of the way of this uh, meteor shower that's taking place. That's, that's pretty good. But in a sense, the world hasn't seen anything yet. And that leads us to Revelation chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. What is going on there? Why the quiet? Yeah, very, very ominous, very, very, very creepy almost where what's happened if, you know, you're reading chapter seven, there's this incredible worship procession happening where all these people are worshiping God in chapter seven. And then all of a sudden they open the seal and then there's just this flat silence within heaven for a half an hour. Yeah, hear a pin drop. Exactly. And I I think what's happening here, I mean, we, we do this sometimes here on earth, we call them moments of silence. And moments of silence are usually used to describe some sort of a grief or a mourning. So it's like God is, and we see this, we see in the book of Revelation, like I said, the restraint of God, that he is judging the earth, but there's not a glee. There's not some maniacal laughter coming from God as he is frying ants with a magnifying glass. Yeah. You know, he's, he is very, it's a very somber yeah. uh, event for God to do, a very grieving event for, uh, for God to do. We see uh, an example of this when Jesus was on the scene, recognizing the judgment that would happen to Jerusalem after his betrayal and after his crucifixion. He doesn't, again, he doesn't laugh. He doesn't, he's like, man, they're going to get what's coming to them. He starts weeping and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the saints and murder the prophets, how I long to bring you underneath me like a mother hen gathers her young. So you see this, this picture of God as being someone, again, where he, there, there's part of it you could look at and say, maybe there's a, a level where God's waiting, like he's, he's almost wanting people to repent. But then there's another level of a somberness, like a moment of silence in heaven to commemorate what's about to happen. Yeah, and the other thing is, and, and I think it's kind of interesting, you can miss it because, you know, we read chapters and we finish a chapter and we compartmentalize it. But what's happening at the end of chapter 6 uh, when the sixth seal is broken, going into the seventh seal, you know, this cataclysm is taking place. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit and given you illustrations about, uh, you know, say the Tunguska event uh, that happened in Siberia with just flattened, you know, thousands upon thousands of square feet of uh, forest up there. You know, fortunately, there weren't a whole lot of people around there. But, you know, we read you the account of a guy that was uh, 80 miles away. Uh, from where this thing entered the atmosphere and his clothes caught on fire while he was watching it. The heat was so intense. Uh, you know, could you imagine being a part of all of that and everybody's just like, ah, you know, all this stuff's going on and the, the, the meteors are falling, you know, all this, this incredible, the sonic booms, the, the sounds of the impact, the explosions that are going on, you know, the mountains literally being moved and flattened. I mean, look up at the Catalina Mountains. You think that's as solid as it gets. These things are going to be moved out of the way. Uh, you like Hawaii? Hawaii's going to be moved. Uh, during this particular time, and and just the sound and the cataclysm, and then suddenly, nothing, not a sound. And, and you know, there's a couple of different thoughts about that. 
One of them is that God causes this silence to happen. It talks about a silence in heaven, but it does appear that it carries over to the creation. In order to make sure that nobody on earth just says, oh, bad break, you know, we're just, you know, a bunch of meteors hit all at once, I guess. God didn't certainly have anything to do with it. There's a completely naturalistic explanation Climate change, probably. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we, can, yeah. we can figure all this out. But then this silence, just boom, silence. You know, there's no way that anybody on the scene could possibly attribute this to natural phenomena. The other thought about this, and, and uh, I think it, it is likely, is that when there's a silence, sometimes you can say more by not saying something than by saying something. You know, I remember when I was a little kid, I think I was about like eight years old, and my buddies and I decided that it would really be neat for us to all set our alarms and get up at two in the morning and sneak out and, uh, and meet one another. And, and I went down to my friend's house. It was about a half mile away from my house. And, uh, you know, the front door was open. Back in those days, people did that. I just walked in the house, and, and my friend had overslept, and he went, oh, I'm too tired. So I went, oh, okay, this is a bust. I'll just head home. Well, I, you know, I forgot that the guy's father was an airline pilot. He was coming home from, uh, you know, flying a red eye, and he sees me walking out his front door, and he goes, what are you doing here? I go, oh, I'm just walking. And I just kept going. <laughs> and I remember walking up the street, and I was, like, looking at the telephone wires, and I just go, oh, please, well, don't call, don't call, don't call. And, and, and I had to go around a corner to where my house was. It was kind of a blind corner. And I knew that if all the lights were out, I had a chance of getting away with this. But if the thing was lit up like Alcatraz in a prison break, I was in big trouble. Well, I come around the corner, and the lights are on, and there's a greeting committee there. There's my mom, and she's all freaked out, and there's my older brother who's sitting there smiling because he knows I'm going to get it, and, and, and you know, then there's my dad. And my dad was a, was a master at effective discipline. He didn't have to discipline us much because when he did, he did a really good job. And, you know, I was fully expecting, okay, I'm dead. You know, uh, you know, dad's going to kill Ralphie, you know, from Christmas story and all this. And my dad just did the wisest thing. He just stared at me with those steely German eyes and said, I will deal with you in the morning. And he went to bed. Didn't say another thing to me. And I think if there was a cartoon version of where I was for the next, you know, four hours or so before my dad got up for his golf game, you would have just seen this blackness with these two huge eyes there in the darkness. Because, you know, that was the most effective way to make sure I would never, ever do that again. And, and, and you know, again, there were consequences to all of that. And I remember trying to put on uh, four pairs of underwear to soften the blow, but, you know, I, that didn't work out either. Uh, but, but that silence... The fact that it was all quiet and I had nothing else I could do than to think about what was coming next. You know, there's a possibility that that's what the Lord is doing. It's like, really think about what you're doing here. Think about where you're going. Think about what my word has told you. Um, you know, uh, Chuck Smith in his ministry was master of the long pause. And sometimes you can say more 
with a pause. Nervous laughter. <laughs> then you can by filling up something with words. And I think that's what, in a sense, what may be going on. There's another insight, and we'll get to it in a few verses. But there was silence in heaven for a half an hour, and I saw seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. What's going on here? Yeah, so this is, this is really cool and interesting, especially for those of you guys who know your Old Testament. So um, in the Old Testament, when Moses was given the instructions on how to build the tabernacle, the, the precursor to the temple, he was actually given incredibly detailed blueprints of exactly how this thing would look. And this is usually where people check out of the book of Exodus yeah. and give up. <laughs> if you're, you're on, planning on reading yeah. through the Bible yeah. a year, yeah. usually people take the off round. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. Exodus, once it gets to these really detailed, intricate yeah. plans of how the, t the tabernacle are going to look, people are like, okay, let, let's skip ahead. Then they get to Leviticus and things don't get much better. Yeah. They're like, I'm done. And Chronic <laughs> Chronicles just kills them. Yeah, Chron yeah. it's just like, let, let's just, I'm going to stick to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, yeah. and the rest yeah. of the New Testament. Yeah. I am done going south of the Matthew Malachi line. Yeah. Uh, that's usually what happens to people. But the reason why these instructions were so detailed is because Moses was actually given a glimpse of God's throne room. And what he was doing was he was building a model of it on this earth. So everything we see in the tabernacle is something that Moses actually saw in God's throne room. And there was a very particular correlation to everything that he put down there. Now, one of the things that they had is they had the priests burning incense within the temple or the tabernacle, and it was a very specific scent that they had to burn there, and it was very pleasing. It was like this sweet aroma. And it wasn't to be duplicated. No. <laughs> if you tried to duplicate it in any way, it was a capital crime. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So you can't get the recipe online, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. But God took it very seriously. Yeah, God took it very, very seriously. But we do know it was a sweet aroma. It was something that was very aesthetically pleasing, something that when you went in, you're like, wow, this, this is really cool. Now we actually see what this represented. And, and I, I believe in the book of Psalms, there's also references to this as well. Yeah, Psalm 141 uh, says, Let my prayer be set before you as incense. The lifting of my hands is the evening sacrifice. Mm, absolutely. So interestingly, you know, here you have the incense being burned, and we know from the Psalms and from this passage what they represented. They represent the prayers of the saints. Really cool. You know, really, really cool and beautiful to understand that when you pray to God, and I don't know if this ever comes through your mind of like, am I bugging him? You know, like he's, <laughs> he's God, you know, he's got all these important things to, and, and my petty little problems, you know, are, are these annoying God? Are they? Or how many times have I prayed this prayer? Right. <laughs> I'm praying about this situation. Here I come again, God. I know you're bored about hearing this, but... Yeah, yeah. and then you kind of skip over the details like, oh, I've already said that before. And then you just go through it. Yeah. But here we, we see that the opposite is true. When the saints pray to God, it's very pleasing to him. There's something very refreshing to God when he hears his children praying to him. 
And and again, we got to get that image of God out of our head where he's that strict king in the sky who can't be bothered with the petty problems of mortals. God is described as our father. He delights in hearing from his children. He really wants to. And when we keep going, we'll figure out the content of these prayers and know that they're not flowery roses and sunshine. Yeah. And God is still very pleased. God help to me to make this things. next traffic light. That yeah. Sort of thing. yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but, you know, God is still very pleased to hear the, to, to hear our prayers. And there's a there's a there's a beauty in it. God sees a very beautiful aspect to it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as it's as it's described, notice he was given then another angel having a, a golden censer. Uh, you know, some people will say uh, that this other angel here, another angel here, uh, maybe Jesus because of his intercessory uh, relationship. I don't think so. I think it's uh, another uh, angel in the sense that there were the seven angels that were standing before the throne. There's two words for another in Greek. One is the word heteros. We get our term heterosexual from it. means another of a different kind. That would probably be what would be used if this was dealing with Jesus. And then there's another alas, which means another of the same kind. So these are intense, mighty angels, you know, the big seven, if you will, plus one who's in charge of uh, this intercessory offering here. He's given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which is before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. Now notice, these prayers go up to heaven. They are mixed with incense to make them pleasing in their sight. John Corson uh, from Applegate, Oregon, uh, talks about how isn't it wonderful that our prayers are mixed with incense? They aren't just incense; they're mixed with incense. Because let's face it, we pray for some pretty dopey things, don't we? You know, we we, we pray for some things. Ruth Graham's famous uh, quote that if God had answered her prayers just the way she had prayed them, she would have married the wrong man six times. You know, uh, you know, we, we we ask God for for silly things or frivolous things or or maybe even fleshly things. But God doesn't really care so much uh, that we may not be tracking with his good, acceptable, and perfect will in terms of praying as much as he cares that we are praying. And, and what John Corson pointed out is by mixing that incense with our prayers, he takes what John said, our stinky prayers, and he makes them sweet. You know, he makes them access, acceptable to God. And, and so this really ties into what the book of Hebrews says about coming boldly before the throne of grace. That word boldly in the original language is two words fused together. The words to say, and the second word is anything. You can say anything to God. You know, you, you don't have to couch your prayers in King James English. You don't have to worry if they're properly formatted or they'll get booted back. Um, you can say anything to God. And, and even, you know, if we're praying, maybe even not with great motives, you know, one of those break my enemies' teeth off in their mouths, God's kind of prayers. Uh, you know, God says, as long as you're coming to me. And, and that really explains something. Do you ever read through the Psalms and wonder how some of the Psalms made it in the Bible? Because David's saying some really gnarly, heavy things, right? Do I not hate those who hate you, O God? I hate them with a perfect hatred. We go, David, 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 stop that. That's so unspiritual. Why would you say something like that? 
How, why did that make it into the Bible? You know, you'd think, you know, uh, the Holy Spirit editing. Ah, uh, you know, let's 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 drop that. Too confusing. Uh, you know, too earthy, too real. Uh, no, the, the reason it is in there is because it's earthy and real, and, and it can be confusing. I think to people who like their religion phony and and superficial, but. In all of our lives, there comes a time where you're just like, oh, God, you know, this, this situation, these people, I just, I just hate them, God. And God doesn't mind you saying something like that to him as long as you're saying it to him. And I find that if when I say those things to him and really understand that God's heard what I'm saying, you know, the, the fact is I'm trusting him to be the judge. I, I'm trusting him. Uh, that I can be completely vulnerable to him. I'm trusting him that I don't have to edit and self-censor. Now, I always remember who I'm talking to, obviously, and we should when we're talking to the Lord. But there's another side of it kind of like that. Who are you trying to kid, kid? You know, you're saying all the right things and all the right cliches and stapling together all the things from theologians. But God knows your heart. He knows what's going on deep inside. You know, and, and so that beautiful picture of even taking our earthiness, uh, as John would say, our stinkiness, and mixing it with that incense, this beautiful picture of God purifying all of that. But notice, the prayers go up, but then they come back, back down. He threw it to the earth, and there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. What kind of prayer do you suppose was being prayed that would elicit this kind of response? Yeah, it doesn't seem to be a prayer to, as you said, catch a light. <laughs> it, yeah. does, it does seem to be what we would call an imprecatory prayer. So right. uh, a lot of the psalms are blessing psalms. They're praise psalms, and that's why we, we love them so much. They're very beautiful. But there is a subset of the psalms that we call the imprecatory psalms, which I think is like the coolest word ever. And it means it literally means the cursing psalms. And so they're not praising. They are intended to declare cursings on people, on individuals. And they're pretty radical. They're very radical. You you mentioned one in Psalm 58 where he actually prays that God would break the teeth out of the mouths of his enemies. And later on in that same psalm, he talks about wanting to wash his feet in their blood. There are other psalms where the writers are wanting God to so annihilate their enemies that even their children will be dashed upon the cobblestones. And when you read it, you're like, whoa, like that yeah. is that is not great. And remember, they used to sing these yeah, as songs. Right? Sounds like a death metal concert. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I love Psalm fifty-eight, which is amazing. I love Psalm fifty-eight. It is set to the tune of "Do Not Destroy," which is the most metal tune I've ever heard in my entire life. And the lyrics are very metal as well. And you know, for for someone like me who struggles so much with violence and so struggles so much with aggression and anger. Psalms like this really, really benefited me because I didn't know what to do with my anger except for to deny that it existed. And what I found is that the more I denied that my anger was actually there, the less I was able to actually process what my anger was about, what part of it was actually righteous, what part of it was actually fleshly, and what do I actually do with it? And I realized I was just being eaten alive by my bitterness and my resentments until I learned how to pray like this. So again, like you said, Scott, it's not like we go before God and we're just like praying like God rip their throats out. You know, I hope, you know, it's not, we're not attempting to become maniacal or murderous or anything like that. But if we have genuine feelings of anger, uh, upset, bitterness, resentment towards other people, 
it's good to bring that to God because what God will do in those moments of prayer, and you see this in Psalm 58, by the way, where you're praying it, but you're allowing God to be judged, and that includes judging you to judge your prayer, to look at it and say, this is good, this is bad. Like this is, maybe this is the the right thing to feel, but it's wrong to want to take vengeance in your own power. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will avenge. Yeah. Um, or maybe he's looking at it and you're like, you're just totally off, right? Every part of your anger is completely unrighteous. You have no just reason to be angry right now. It's just your block goals and your narcissism. And sometimes God has pointed that out in me as well. But here we see that the anger that these people were praying was just. They are praying because the world has begun to persecute Christians in a very horrific way, and we get more insight in exactly how this looks in future chapters. But these saints are praying for vindication. And again, we don't have to wait for this time period to see persecution of Christians and righteous prayers of cursing going up to God. It's happening right now. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, the other thing that's fascinating is, uh, and, and I just think this is a, a tremendous insight, is that there are times, I think, in all of our lives as Christians where we wonder if our prayers are really getting through, you know, if God's really listening at all, particularly if you've been praying about something you haven't seen any kind of a response for a long, long time. Uh, you know, that's kind of where we get in the perfunctory, well, God, I know it's the right thing to pray. I know you're not going to do anything about it, but I'm going to pray it again, you know, in the back of your mind, and you, you, you keep on praying. You know, one of those prayer requests that I think we can erroneously think is gone unanswered is a prayer request that people have been making among God's family for quite literally the last 2,000 years. When Jesus told us to pray, thy kingdom come. You know, I mean, here we see that God remembered every single time that was prayed and that God honored every single time that was prayed. And, and here's a real mind twister to me. Our prayers are used by God as part of how he accomplishes his will for this world. You know, you know there, there are those who will say, you know, well, we can't be too demanding in the presence of God. And obviously there's things like the faith movement where that idea of demanding and telling God is business have gone to seed. But there are those on our side of the fence that almost react the other way, uh, where we pray, but we really don't expect anything to happen. You know, one thing I will say about my involvement with uh, the faith movement early on as a believer in the Lord, those guys got a lot of things wrong. But one of the things they got right was when they prayed, they actually expected things to happen. And when we pray, thy kingdom come. You ever prayed that prayer and took a step back and say, what am I really asking for here? What, what am I really praying for? You know, well, I think there is an immediate sense in which we can pray thy kingdom come and see it answered because, you know, Romans chapter 14 and verse 17 says the kingdom of God isn't eating or drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. God wants to give us the gift of righteousness, a right relationship with him. He wants to give us peace. That is the experience of his love, his unconditional love that, that will tell us that everything is okay. He wants to give us joy, that forward-looking hope 
that we have, that, that God is really going to, to work things out in our lives personally. And that's certainly the horizontal. But the great prayer that we're praying when we pray, uh, thy kingdom come, is we're praying, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. And boy, I'll tell you, the more I go around the block in the Christian life, the more I, you know, fire up the old interwebs and see what's in the news, the more I think the idea of Jesus coming back soon is a really, really good idea. And, and, and I think as we pray that prayer, and we understand that God takes that prayer seriously, do you realize this? This is really trippy. Your prayers, praying for the Lord's kingdom to come, are answered in this passage. This is part of what you've done by praying the way Jesus taught you to pray. Your prayers are mixed with that incense, and they have tremendous effect. You know, the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth, and there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. You know, we could say this is a summary statement of the over-the-top judgments that are yet to take place in the book of Revelation as God reclaims uh, earth, as he evicts evil, if you will, from earth. Just one last thing I want to point out, and then I had a question for you. I, I think it would be cool to hear your response. I had an idea, but it's probably wrong. Um, <laughs> I'll be the judge. Yeah. <laughs> the, the really cool thing about this, when he comes, again, this is a picture of the throne room. What is center stage? It's the altar, right? So before the prayers come about, this altar is depicted in front of God's throne room. And the altar was, obviously, those of you guys who know, it was used to sacrifice the propitiatory or the covering sacrifices for the nation of Israel so that God did not judge them. So John, isn't that a really interesting picture? John sees the prayers for judgment rise up, but what's in front of them is the altar, almost in the way of the judgment that is to come. So again, you see this picture of God judging, but God also giving a way to avoid judgment, to pass from wrath into mercy for people through the altar, through what Jesus Christ had done. And it's center stage in God's kingdom. Uh, I, was, I was watching this show not too long ago, and uh, someone, you know, he's, he's a real TV addict, and someone was like, oh, we don't even have a TV. He says, what do you aim all your furniture at then? You know, <laughs> as his, his perspective is that's the, that's the, that's the focal yeah, point sure. uh, because that's what everyone's going to be looking at. The focal point of heaven, interestingly, is this altar, this golden altar. Why? Because without the altar, heaven only has God in it. That's yeah. it. God and the angels. Yeah. So this beautiful thing of the altar being the entrance into the kingdom and the focal point. So uh, I thought that was a really cool insight. But I wanted to ask you, why trumpet judgments? So we, we give a, get a picture of seal. The seals are representative of uh, the, the title deed, which we talked about, and God loosing the seals, and that's why those are depicted in that fashion. But why do you think trumpets are the picture of this new form of judgment? You know, I, I don't think we need to guess. I think the Bible gives us the answer to all of this, and this is why, as you mentioned, it's really a good thing to venture south of that Matthew-Malachi line, uh, especially if you're going to try to go through the book of Revelation. Uh, when I run into people who say, oh, I tried to read Revelation once, and just all these weird symbols and awful things happening, and someone threw them in a blender and put it on puree, and that was it, and 
And I, I mean, I even know churches where uh, the, there's a church in Southern California, a mega church out there. They had had a turnover, a couple of scandals with pastors. They brought in this new gunslinger pastor who was going to fix everything. And I was told by one of the guys on staff that what he did was sit down with his staff. And he goes, all right, things are going to change around here. Um, we're going to be more seeker-sensitive. Uh, we're not going to talk about politics. We're not going to talk about abortion. And we are not going to talk about the book of Revelation because it just upsets people. You know, and when I heard that, I was just like, wow, 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 wow. Because the book of Revelation talks about those who conceal the message of this book are, are, are in big-time trouble uh, spiritually. You know, but the, the reason I think there's so much confusion out there is because there are so many people who are biblically illiterate as far as what the Old Testament has to say. And, and, and if you want to do a personal self-evaluation quiz like you see online and find out how literate you are on the Old Testament, read the book of Revelation. Because if it leaves you confounded and confused, it's probably God's way of saying, you need to read the previous 65 books before you try to read the 66th. It's like reading the last page of a mystery novel. You know, none of it really makes sense until you realize everything that had gone before. And it's the same thing with the book of Revelation. Why seven trumpets? Why trumpet judgments? Well, it goes back to the book of Joshua. You remember the old uh, spiritual. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. Very interesting aspect of that particular operation, probably one of the craziest invasions uh, in the history of mankind. The people of Israel go into the promised land. They, they uh, cross the, the, the Jordan River. The Jordan River parts for them, just like the Red Sea did. It was God's way of saying, I'm going before you. But the scouting report on the promised land that was given way back in Numbers chapter 14 that caused Israel's faith to fail was really true. It had huge walled cities. It had fierce people. It had giants in the land and so forth. The first place that God takes his people to take on was probably the most unassailable target in the entire promised land. You'd think God would warm them up with a few little ones first and get their confidence up. No, they go to Jericho. And God has a very interesting strategy for them as they go to Jericho. You can read about it in Joshua chapter 6. Um, Joshua said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to march around the walls once a day. The priests are going to go before us blowing trumpets. How many priests? Seven priests blowing trumpets. And you're supposed to keep your mouth shut. We're going to blow the trumpets. We're going to walk around the wall. Six days that goes on. <laughs> you know, and I'm sure if you're, you know, uh, you watch Veggie Tales and, and so on, uh, you can imagine, you know, the little grapes up there on the wall going, what are those idiots doing down there? And, you know, first they were frightened because they'd heard all the stuff about the, the Red Sea and, you know, how God's hand was with them. But all they're seeing is these people just walking around the wall and then they leave. You know, nobody fires a shot. Seventh day, Joshua says, what? You're going to walk around the walls seven times. The trumpets are going to sound, and when the trumpet sounds, you all shout. 
And as they shouted, the walls fell flat. In other words, the most intimidating bastion of human power in the promised land, the enemy of all enemies, the, the, the one fortress nobody could ever take or assail. God dealt with supernaturally. You know, God, in a sense, flattens this tribute to human pride and arrogance and false religion, and he does it without his people firing a shot. You know, it's not us who bring in the kingdom. It's God who brings in the kingdom. And as we see these trumpet judgments taking place, you know, to a Jewish mind, and, you know, a good chunk of John's audience at that point goes, seven trumpets? Oh, yeah. God's supernatural victory over overwhelming odds. And remember who's receiving this letter right off the get-go. These aren't people that are thinking, man, you know, we're doing so great and we're taking so much territory and everybody loves us. We're going to win the world for Jesus and he's going to come back. That kind of, they call it dominion theology, that we're going to take over the world and then hand it to Jesus. Nobody was buying that back then. I mean, John, who was arguably the most significant leader the church had left at this point, well, the, the last remaining apostle out of the 12, uh, they couldn't kill him, so they sent him to this rock called Patmos out in the middle of the Aegean Sea. And, uh, you know, he was just there, another prisoner, sitting there on the rock doing nothing. And that was bad, but it, the stuff that was going on in the mainland was even worse. You know, widespread persecution had broken out, and, and people were, were saying, you know, where is God in all of this, and where is the victory? And, and, and this message of future certain victory even over those who were in awesome power, likening it back to how unlikely it was. And remember, try to imagine being part of the people of Israel where Joshua tells you, don't say a word, just walk around the walls. Probably by day five, you're probably looking at the guy next to you, you're not supposed to say anything, but this is really getting to be kind of silly. You know, is God going to ever do anything? You know, is he going to... But on that seventh day when they shouted, kaboom. You know, tremendous... Tremendous victory by the hand of God. And, and so for those that were first receiving this message, and by extension us, it's a reminder that no matter how with it and together and intimidating the forces arrayed against God in his kingdom might seem to be, God is going to have the last blast, if you will. You know, the, the, the last blast of the trumpets we see here. You know, and so very significant in an Old Testament sense. Absolutely, and I, I love that message, and I love this idea, and I've, I've spoken to you guys before about how this message has been kind of mixed up in my brain for a while, you know, uh, joining the Marines and wanting to serve my country and, and things like that, and then becoming very disillusioned with how government and politics really work in the real world, and coming back and, and becoming very cynical, and then slowly becoming a little more optimistic, and then becoming cynical again the last two years, and then now it's like, but the, the message here is actually to prevent us from becoming cynical. If you have a utopian vision for the world, meaning if you believe that your mission is to save the world and that politics and world leaders are going to do it, you have set yourself up for a lot of cynicism and a lot of depression. Uh, it was a funny story. Yeah, a couple of years ago, I, I watched a video where uh, some pastors who believed in D Dominion theology, very bright guys, very respectable, but they were talking about their belief and what you just said, that this is what's going to happen. Man, you know, the, the book of Revelation, it's allegorical, happened in AD 70, we're going to take over politics, and then through the uh, civilizing impact of Christianity, 
the world's going to be basically converted and we're going to hand it over to Jesus. This was like five or six years ago. I watched this video and then I rewatched it two years ago when the whole COVID-19 thing happened. And the first comment under that video says, I wonder what these guys are saying now. <laughs> because their whole idea was like Western civilizations, like totally the ticket. You know, yeah, you see how, sure. yeah. how great we're doing yeah. and how it's yeah. just going to keep getting better and better, baby. <laughs> and people are like, I wonder how they think about this now. But yeah, if you, if you have that utopian vision, you will just fall into despair and cynicism. But if you go on the other side of the, the token and you don't believe that Jesus is ever coming back, why would you do anything if the idea that the world is just going to get worse and worse and politicians and world leaders are going to do what they're going to do over and over again? Why would you care unless you have a Christian worldview where the world is important to God? God will not just raise us, but he will create a new heavens and a new earth. He will raise the earth through his son. Yeah. And we also believe that this will happen. So we don't have a utopian vision when we seek to help our communities or to reach people with the gospel. We don't think it's actually going to save the world, but we do believe that our impact matters, that the way that we live matters, and that Jesus will be victorious. Only with that message do you not fall into cynicism or blind, naive utopianism. And that's where we need to see in this book, I believe. Yeah, yeah, powerful stuff. So the trumpets are about to sound. The silence of heaven is going to be broken. And in verse 7 next week, we're going to see what happens when that takes place. Lord, thanks so much that we could have this time tonight to look into these powerful, powerful pictures of what's going on in heavenly places. And Lord, if we have undersold the power of prayer or think that we pray and that it's just bounced off the ceiling or drifted out into some cold and uncaring universe. Lord, help us to realize that our prayers are powerful things. You say in James chapter 5 that the fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. Please, Lord, help our prayers to be fervent. Lord, give us a vision for the power that prayer truly has and, and in what high esteem it's held in heaven. Thank you, Lord, that you mix even our goofiest prayers together with that glorious incense that makes them pleasing in your sight. But Lord, help us to never pray that simple prayer. Hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the same way ever again, help us to realize that matters more than anything else. And one day, a mighty angel is going to take those prayers, mix them with incense from the altar, ignite it, and cast it to earth. And we are going to see those prayers answered in a very powerful way. So, Lord, help us to be faithful, to contribute to this, to continue to do it, uh, because, Lord, I really think the fulfillment of these things is sooner than we think. Help us to stay focused on you coming back soon, Jesus, because that's going to keep us out of a world of hurt, a world of worldly, world, worldliness, a world of distraction. Help us, Lord, to maintain that focus, no matter what. In Jesus' name, amen.